Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in his new book, Fear is Just a Word, the New York Times' Azam Ahmed tells the story of a mother, Miriam Rodriguez, whose daughter is kidnapped by a violent cartel in Mexico and who seeks revenge against her daughter's kidnappers. Rodriguez would eventually lead law enforcement to arrest nearly a dozen cartel members, doing much of the investigative work herself. But Ahmed's story is also an in-depth look at daily life in a town terrorized by a cartel, at government failures, and of existing in the space of not knowing what happened to a loved one. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Miriam Rodriguez was working as a nanny in Texas in 2014 when she got the call that her 20-year-old daughter Karen had been kidnapped by the Zetas, one of the most violent cartels in Mexico. For Miriam, it would mark the beginning of a quest for justice for Karen, for the arrest of every Zeta member involved in her kidnapping, despite great risk to Miriam and her family. It's a years-long fight that's chronicled by New York Times international investigative correspondent Azam Ahmed. His new book is called Fear is Just a Word. And he joins me now. Azam, welcome to Forum. Thank you, Mina. It's great to be here. So the kidnapping you you write about of Miriam's daughter, Karen, it took place in a town in Mexico called San Fernando. Can you tell us about San Fernando? Sure. San Fernando was, for most of its history, a small cattle ranching town. It's about 90 miles from the U.S. border, a quick drive, and it's in the center of a state called Tamaulipas. Hmm. Now, up until really the 2000s, it was a quiet town, the kind of place where everybody knew each other, or if they didn't, knowing someone's last name would help you figure out who they were, because there just weren't that many families or people who hadn't grown up there. But as the drug wars began in Mexico and violence began to escalate, This town, because of its central location in the state of Tamaulipas, 
became an epicenter of violence. And it became an epicenter of violence because a bunch of highways that ran through the state of Tamaulipas and onto Texas, which shared a border with Tamaulipas, was strategically important for anyone trying to smuggle things in or out of Mexico. And so it basically went from not even being on the map to being perhaps the most hotly contested place in the whole country. Hmm. And who is Miriam Rodriguez? (laughs) Tell us about her. Miriam Rodriguez was a mother of three. She sold boots and hats from a store in the local market in the town of San Fernando. She'd grown up there. Her whole family was there. And up until the point that her daughter was kidnapped in 2014, she was just a a figure in the community, sort of a quiet woman that people knew as a local merchant whose husband was also a merchant and whose children had grown up in town. Um, As someone once described her, común y corriente, which is basically just everyday, an everyday mother. No one one that people had taken note of. And what was her understanding of the cartels and how they operated. How did Miriam, you know, consider her capacity to basically exist with the cartels around before, of course, Karen was kidnapped? So over the decades, even before Miriam was born, there had always been a criminal presence in San Fernando and in Tamaulipas, you know, it shared a border with the United States. And so all the way back in the 1930s, the criminal syndicates that syndicates that operated there used to smuggle alcohol into the United States during Prohibition. But over the years, the criminal landscape changed, and this criminal syndicate became a cartel known as the Gulf Cartel. They sort of had a peaceful coexistence with the locals. It was a live and let live kind of dynamic. You know, people knew who they were, what they did. They didn't involve themselves, and the criminals didn't involve themselves with the people. If anything, there was something akin to local celebrities buying meals for everyone in restaurants or mm. throwing lavish parties. It was a, it was an un- unspoken understanding that those were people that did what they did and regular working people who had nothing to do with that world had nothing to worry about in general. And that was how it existed until really until the 2000s when things began to change drastically. And that's when the Zetas also have a presence, develop a presence there. Essentially, the Gulf Cartel and the Zetas sort of carve up San Fernando, in a way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they carve up beyond Tamaulipas. I mean, the Zetas were, a, were an important force of violence through all of Mexico. So starting in the late 1990s, through most of the history of Mexico, the government has been extraordinarily strong. You know, a famous writer once called it the world's most famous dictatorship, because there was a powerful president and a political party that was the entire political system. And so essentially with that kind of power, they subjugated the criminal class. And there was almost a, it almost worked like a co-op. Criminals worked with the government, but the government sort of called the shots. Towards the end of the 90s, that, there was an inversion. The government and democracy began to change Mexico. This one party fractured. And suddenly instead of one single, you know, if you think of it in musical terms, instead of a solo, there was you know, like a symphony of new power brokers. And that meant that the cartel community and the the organized crime community could suddenly have a much more powerful role in a system that was no longer dictated by a powerful political order. Mm. And the head of the Gulf cartel at that time, a man named Osiel Cardenas, who's still alive and in prison in the United States, he had an idea. He thought, you know, the old dynamic is changing. The government no longer tells us what to do. Therefore, the new currency of power, the way that people are going to dominate in Mexico, is going to be violence. And to achieve that, 
he essentially exploited a gross inefficiency in the Mexican market, which was that cartels got paid a lot of money, but had relatively unsophisticated people working for them. And then you had the military, which was incredibly sophisticated, but was paid very little. So exploiting that disparity, he hired a bunch of special forces soldiers from the Mexican military to become essentially his Praetorian guard. Those were the first setas. Mm. And that move pioneered and militarized violence in Mexico, really. Because suddenly, these setas were incredibly effective at anything they wanted to do, whether it was taking over territory, defending against rivals, even taking on the police or the government. Other cartels had to do the same thing, and it, the idea spread. You know, They were like a disruptor. And yeah. the government itself had to militarize violence to, to fight them. Yeah, so it's just this escalation, these cartels needing to militarize to essentially stay competitive in the drug market, and then the government responding in kind. We're talking with Azam Ahmed about how a cartel can come to terrorize a local population and, and an entire state and beyond, and also how one mother took on one of these most violent cartels in Mexico. His book is called Fear is Just a Word, A Missing Daughter, A Violent Cartel, and a Mother's Quest for Vengeance. So talk about what happened to Miriam's daughter, Karen, the kidnapping in 2014. Can you just walk us through the initial efforts that Miriam made to pay the ransom to get her back? Absolutely. So in January of 2014, Miriam gets a call. As you said earlier, Miriam was working as a nanny in Texas. She received a call from her older daughter telling her that Karen had been kidnapped. She raced home. And these, these sorts of kidnappings were so common by then as to almost be unremarkable. Newspapers didn't report on them. Neighbors said nothing. It was just so common that it was only really the family of those who had suffered those kinds of acts of violence who really really knew about it. And Miriam immediately pays a ransom. She and her husband drop off money to the kidnappers. And usually the understanding is if you pay the ransom, you get your loved one back. Only it didn't work that time. She ran into the kidnappers again. In fact, they they found her to solicit more money, and she paid that, and she still didn't get them. Kidnappings at that time were so common in this town that the banks actually offered loans to pay ransoms. And after they'd taken money out and spent everything they had, after paying a third ransom, Miriam decided one day that her daughter was never coming home. She just knew it, that at least not in the way that she'd hoped, you know, not not alive. Yeah. You you really do describe in a way that I think really helps us understand what it was like for Miriam to be in, in that space of not knowing what happened to Karen, not knowing whether she's alive or not. I think you described it as the torture of hope. And I'm wondering if you would just talk about that a little bit to describe what you would notice about what you called the relatives of the disappeared. Yeah, I, I worked for many years in Mexico. I started as bureau chief there in 2015 and worked for six years before I before I took book leave to write this book. And during that time, I met, God, I must have met thousands of, of these families of the disappeared, and they, they live these lives of people hollowed out by loss. It is one thing to have a loved one die and to know they died, another thing to know they died violently, but to not know leaves the victim in a perpetual state of torture. It was this gross product of what I call the war continuum. When violence is unregulated, 
or rather becomes the way in which crime is regulated or a market like drug sales is regulated. There is no, there's no limit to it. And the illogical conclusion of where that lands is that if I disappear someone, I do two things. I get rid of the body and therefore there's no crime. And I also consign their families to a lifetime of torture, of not knowing. Now, I, yeah. I, for me, it was always such a, an emotional thing to run into these people and to just imagine someone I love being taken and never knowing what happened to them. Just, you know, you wake up every day and every moment that you're not looking for them feels like a betrayal of them. But then I had a child while I was writing this book. Mm. And it made me realize, like, there's just... You know, there's like a there's a contract that a child has with their parents. And when that gets broken, so many of these families just wind up broken themselves. They sort of, I think I describe it as living lives in a state of spent anguish, beyond the point of tears, but unable to move on. Mm-hmm. And that was what 99.9, I mean, maybe even 999,999 of a million people have felt, you know, but Miriam didn't. Miriam, she channeled that loss and that pain. You know, I she became entrepreneurial in her grief. She found a way to harness it and turn it into something. And that something was to go after these people, to search for her own measure of justice, because after paying all those bribes and going to the police, they wouldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything. They were so inefficient and incapable that they just they just sort of pretended that they listened to what she was saying. And so she kind of became this one-woman army to, to go after the most violent organization in all of Mexico. Yeah. We're talking with Azama Ahmed about this mother, Miriam, who took on one of the most violent cartels in Mexico after her daughter was, was kidnapped. Um, and I want to invite listeners, if you are hearing aspects of this story that feel similar to your own experience. Maybe you've been in the situation of knowing what happened to someone you cared for or taking it upon yourself to figure out what happened to someone because no one authorities or officials would help you. Or maybe you have a direct connection to violence in Mexico itself or questions about how Azam reported this story. Um, you can email them to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with international investigative correspondent for The New York Times, Azam Ahmed, who's also the former Mexico bureau chief for The Times. He is the author of a new book called Fear is Just a Word, A Missing Daughter, a Violent Cartel, and a Mother's Quest for Vengeance. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions or experiences that uh, Azam is describing the number eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. Our social channels are at KQED Forum, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. Our email address forum at kqed.org. Azam, you were talking about meeting thousands of families. And, and so can you just put in context for us how common the kind of violence that and the kidnappings, for example, I, obviously this has happened a lot but just how common it is across the country, how real this is across the country. Absolutely. I, um, I'll say this. I wrote this book because I wanted to leave a testament of one person's story. I wanted to create a narrative, novelistic, but fully factual record of what people living on the front line of this go through. Not the people who are migrating to the United States, but the ones who stay and suffer at the hands of draconian drug policies and sort of an insatiable U.S. appetite for drugs. But it's it's so common, as I said, to almost be unremarkable, to almost be normalized. There are close to 100,000 people that we know about who have been disappeared from Mexico during the course of the drug war, which dates all the way back to 2006. There are hundreds of thousands who have died. It is, there's, there is, in places like San Fernando, there's not a single family who's untouched by this, whether through direct experience, the experience of relatives or neighbors, or just the privation of life that this kind of dynamic inflicts on a town, on a people. Um, in 2006, then-President Felipe Calderón declared his so-called war on drugs. Now, the consolidation of cartels and their growing power is what he claimed led him to do that, and also at the behest of a United States government eager to sort of take out the scourge of cartels. Right. And from that point on, we've seen more people disappear and more people die than at any point we've seen prior and during the course of the drug war. At the same time, we're seeing more drugs go into the United States so it's a, and more overdoses in the United States. So it's hard to, to see this war on drugs as anything but an abject failure. But I think to answer your question... Anywhere you go in Mexico, it's hard not to find some trace of what's happening there. Elements of criminality, also fractured criminal groups that wind up being more violent and more depraved, in large part because the U.S. strategy of going after the cartels is to, they call it the kingpin strategy, it's to go after the heads of the cartels. The idea being if you take out the head, then local law enforcement, et cetera, can sort of deal with the rest of it. But instead, what happened is it organized crime became a many-headed hydra and it began to diffuse and become harder to track and in some ways grow more violent, less predictable, and certainly less control uh, at the organizational level, which has meant more suffering and more violence and more kidnappings than there had been prior. Um, So San Fernando is in some ways a symbol of what's happening in many places. It's unique in that Miriam's story is about Miriam and about her remarkable efforts and resilience and, and desire to stand up. San Fernando, because it's a particularly concentrated version 
of what has happened and it became an icon of Mexico's ruin. Yeah. But it's not it's not alone that's happening across the border and in you know number of other states across Mexico. Yeah. And at the same time that this is so common, I get this sense from reading your book that you don't want to like paint Mexico as a total hellscape either, right? <laughs> it's like No, no. You, you talk about how you tried to manage that. I mean, this this book emanated from a, a story that I wrote at the end of 2020. And what I was trying to capture in that story, and I think one of the things that I said is like, you know, the thing that is remarkable about Mexico is its people. It is a, it's a, an amazing nation. And you're right, I don't want to paint it as just an unmitigated hellscape because it's not. I mean, culture, art, food, it's world class. It's, you know, it's a remarkable place. My children are Mexican. But it is a place that has yet to account for the rule of law, that has yet to institute a government that can assist or keep its promise to its people. And you see it time and again, there is a, a broken agreement that they will protect and defend and prosecute on behalf of its citizens. And I do, I wanted to make that clear too. And I, I was a reporter in Mexico in my last few years, it was mostly doing investigative work. I did a series of stories on illicit spyware, most likely deployed by the Mexican government against journalists and human rights activists, um, the military's track record of, of killing individuals extrajudicially. And I wrote in so many of those stories about corruption and impunity and violence as though they were pre-existing conditions. They were just facts of life that we all had to accept were part of Mexico. And when I started to write this book, I thought, you know, I've got a shot to do more than just tell the story of this remarkable woman and, and show people what it's like there. I also want to explain to them how Mexico got to be this way. And it's not an indictment of Mexico as a nation, certainly not of its people. Yeah. If anything, it's a, it's a love story for them. But it is an indictment trying to show the ways in which all the way back to the 1920s and 30s, the Mexican state has been captured in many ways by a criminal class and has worked in conjunction with it such that, you know, when it comes to answer the question that is at the heart of this book, how can a mother go and be forced to search for her missing daughter and then be killed for finding justice? Yes. That's a, that's a way of explaining how Mexico, it, it, the cost of what Mexico hasn't been able to do in consolidating governance and, and rule of law. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if you can describe what Miriam confronted in terms of the unwillingness of authorities to help and how that essentially propelled her decision to take finding out what happened to Karen into her home, into her own hands. So she, she began by paying bribes and she told no one uh, outside of her family. I mean, no one in any position of authority. And the reason was don't involve the cops. Don't involve the prosecutors. Don't involve anybody because it reduces the chances that your loved one will be returned. And only after that didn't work, and only after she reached that crucial juncture where she realized that in all likelihood her daughter was dead and never coming home to her, did she decide to go after the people responsible. And the immediate hurdles are to even file, in some of these cases, to even file a criminal report. You couldn't do it in San Fernando. One of her best friends tries to do that a few years earlier and is told she needs to drive to the other side of the state, because that's the only place where the offices are open 
because it's not safe for the government officials to be in the town of San Fernando. And after she files this complaint, she knows full well the government's not going to do anything, that the police aren't going to investigate, that the investigators in the so-called Ministerio Público aren't going to take their time to really look at her case. And so she begins to do it herself. And she does it with a carrot and stick approach. She makes friends with some of these individuals. She finds people within this mechanism who do want to do their job. And then those who don't, she learns how to cajole them, how to bully them, how to humiliate them at times. And she begins to find out information on her own. She tracks down the friends and relatives of people who are involved in organized crime and figures out and gathers intelligence about the people she's targeting. She talks to witnesses. She tracks down people who were there the day that her daughter was kidnapped to get snapshots of information. And ultimately, she builds this massive dossier, which amounts to almost 20,000 pages. And that's the dossier that I ultimately got my hands on after many, 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 many months of working on sources and trying to convince someone to leak me this thing because it's classified. And within that, it, you almost see, it's almost like communing with her yourself. Because Miriam, Miriam had been killed by this cartel before I ever started this story. Right. But I could see that she would go to this person's house and interview them. And then she would send a note to the prosecutor saying, I've just gone and spoke to this person. This is what they told me. I'd like you to go investigate or talk to them so that it can be a part of this case file. You know, and she would do things like when she finally tracked down one of the young men who was involved in her daughter's kidnapping, she found out where he lived. She dyed her hair red so that he wouldn't recognize her. She put on a uniform for the health community, for the health services department in the state of Mexico. And she went door to door doing a survey just so she could figure out what this guy's name was and how old he was so that she could then hand that to prosecutors and force them to file an arrest warrant. She pretended to attend a church where one of the people implicated in her daughter's murder had become a born again Christian until she was certain that it was him. And then she called the police to arrest him. She befriended people in public positions at the social security offices because she knew they had access to the personal records of individuals who she needed to find. And she convinced them to share those records with her because there was, as I said before, there was almost no one who didn't understand what this was, this scourge of violence and impunity and that loss, that sort of loss that could not be remediated by the individual. There was no recourse for you if something happened to you. And so she found someone who had also suffered the loss of a child in the Social Security Ministry who then agreed to help her. And all of that became part of her strategy. You know, she became friends with prosecutors, and then they grew to be inspired by what she was doing, to feel that connection. It almost like allowed them to feel pride in these jobs. I think that for so long, many of them had just grown bitter with. In coming through that dossier, did you get a sense of how Miriam reckoned with the huge risk she was taking, her own safety? You know, not in the dossier. The dossier... She had learned how to communicate with a system that communicated in writing. There's a passage in the book where I sort of just point out how inept the Mexican judicial system is. In the U.S., we have a system called the accusatorial system, where in open court, someone is accused and the prosecution has to prove guilt over innocence um, because there's a presumption of innocence. In the inquisitorial system, which Mexico had, it's all done in writing. It's all done through a single judge. And the writing itself which is written in this like 12th century Baroque Spanish that is almost incomprehensible, is so 
larded with words and phrases. It's almost impossible to understand what any one document is actually trying to convey. Hmm. So it was only after like reading through this morass of documents for months that I finally started to understand what was happening. And that Miriam had learned to communicate in that language, that she had adopted that language because she knew that was how, that was a way to make the system move. When yeah. I came to understand how she felt about taking these risks was in talking to her children and her friends and her relatives. And every one of them had talked to her at one point or another and asked her why she was doing this. You know, what, you know, her son would say and her daughter, like, you have two living children. What are you doing, mom? Like these these people kill with a casual, with a casualness that's staggering. And she said, you know, I, I don't ask me to stop. If these people had taken one of you, I'd be doing the same thing. And they had to respect that. They had to, they knew no matter what they said, she wasn't going to stop. There was this burning hole. I mean, she even told another friend that, you know, I died the way they, I died the day they killed my daughter. And I'm just waiting for life to catch up to me. It's almost like she knew this was going to happen. She knew the risk she was taking, but she didn't care. Yeah. Ultimately, in the end, what kind of impact did she have on the Zetas in terms of arrests and so on? So one of the reveals in the book is Miriam finds out where these people operate. And I won't spoil it, but some of those individuals are dispatched after, you know, Miriam involves the Mexican Marines. Subsequently, she goes after another half dozen and finds them and gets them arrested, including one who's arrested posthumously, who's arrested after she's managed to track down everything from the school that this individual's son goes to, to the job where this individual works, to their home address in a totally different state. But she goes methodically. She creates this list and she goes one by one, notching off each of the individuals involved. So overall, it was about a dozen. Yeah. You, I think, don't see her as a hero. And I think we touched on it a little bit, just in terms of the fact that she could have been putting her own family at great risk, not just herself, by doing what she was doing. And then also the children who were saying, please don't forget that you have two children who love you and don't want to lose you as well. But are there other things that you think are important to understand about who Miriam is? Because she's very complicated. I think that's just it. I didn't want to write a book about some hero riding to the rescue because people aren't like that. The truth isn't like that. I mean, I will definitely say what she did was heroic. It was also reckless, but it was the kind of thing that we all believe we'll do if the most precious thing in our lives is taken from us wrongly. But it's the kind of thing she actually did. And I think there is something remarkable in that, that she put it all on the line for her daughter, for the thing that she loved. I mean, her cause was inherently righteous. And I think there are many complicating factors and things that she did that someone could argue with, but you can't argue with that. You can't argue with the fact that she was, you know, her son used to call it her motor. You know, the motor that was driving her was was a pure one. It was so understandable and relatable. And she did become an inspiration. She she got so good at working this calcified system 
to her demand, she began to do it for others. She created what they call in Mexico a colectivo or a collective. And these were other family members of the disappeared who joined with her and signed on with her, not in a monetary way, but just so that she could help them, help organize them, help represent them. One of her best friends, a woman who would wind up working with her, um, had lost a child in 2010. And it was through Miriam's efforts that this woman was eventually able to find out what happened to her son and get his remains returned to her, which is no small thing. You know, as we were saying, like not, not even having a place to mourn your loved one is a torture. Yeah. And so disappearances are so dark that finding out your loved one has died is a, is a relief. At least you know, at least there's an end to the like perpetual suffering, this liminal space you're kind of trapped in. And so Miriam, complicated as she was, I mean, I, I hope that I would have that kind of resolve if something like that were to happen to me. Um, and at the same time, you're right. She was a very complicated person. She made decisions that endangered other people. You know, and I think the kind of person that can do what she did, track down and go after people who have silenced entire worlds with fear, it's the kind of person that is complicated. That is, it's not a straightforward you know, a straightforward black and white dynamic. You know, she she was the kind of person that could do that because she was also the kind of person who would make complicated decisions that were controversial and problematic. But again, where I always landed every time I would find something new out was that the origin of what she was doing was was righteous. Yeah. We're talking with Azam Ahmed his story about Karen Rodriguez, who was kidnapped by Mexico's Zeta cartel, and Karen's mother, Miriam, who would essentially was unstoppable in terms of her quest to find out what happened to Karen. And Noel on Discord writes, this story needs to go out to all Americans in order for them to understand why so many people from Central America are fleeing. Our asylum system is not set up to accept those fleeing gang persecution. If you have any reflections, thoughts, or experiences um, in hearing what Azam is describing, feel free to email them to forum at kqed.org as well, or to post them on Discord or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Our number is 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Awesome Ahmed this hour, author of the new book, Fear is Just a Word, A Missing Daughter, A Violent Cartel, and a Mother's Quest for Vengeance. And it is about how Miriam Rodriguez took on one of the most violent cartels in Mexico, the Zetas, but also just a window, a look into how a cartel can terrorize a local population, the daily life of living in the presence of a cartel like that, and also government failures, areas where officials were unable or unwilling to help and the impact that this has had on on civilians in these communities. You can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 or by emailing forum or posting on our social channels at KQED Forum. And I want to ask you, what happened to Miriam exactly? You, of course, tell us that she herself, and in some ways was almost resigned to this fate, um, was killed. But how did that come to be? Because she did have notoriety, and I imagine she must have sought some kind of security or support from the government who probably realized it would not be good if something did happen to Miriam. I mean, in some ways, her death was the the perfect circle of impunity that I was trying to, in some ways, that I was trying to show with this yeah. book and this story. The fact that she could be killed was such a... And, it should be noted she was killed on Mother's Day. The fact that she was killed on Mother's Day was such a darkly poetic statement from the powers of organized crime to the community. And the fact that she was this icon of resistance. You know, what hope did anyone else have if Miriam Rodriguez was going to be killed? And who could rely on the government who Miriam had asked for protection? If these individuals could just show up at her house and kill her outside of it on Mother's Day. I think, um, you know, the government still has a lot to answer for with regards to that. They've investigated and arrested some people, but they've never really gotten to the bottom of what happened to her. I mean, I, I found out some of my own and, and have read through some of these classified files, but the truth is, I think this cartel had gotten so used to its impunity that they decided it was no longer worth having her around to do what she was doing because she was sending such a potent message to everyone else of resistance that whatever risk that killing her entailed was worth it to them. And so they decided to to order this. And in an irony that is just deeply profound to me, the individuals or many of the individuals, or at least the key individual involved in her assassination broke out of prison where Miriam had put a half dozen individuals and in, or I think actually four individuals involved in Karen's kidnapping. And the belief is that they all colluded to kill her. So just the, the idea that, that that snapshot of what it actually is, you know, what drove me to kind of write this book, this question of how could a mother seeking justice for her daughter wind up being killed by the very same cartel? Not just how did it happen in a material way, but how could Mexico become a place where this sort of thing happened? Just at every juncture of her story, there was 
just blatant governmental failure up until the very end and even after when she was not protected, she was killed and the government sort of fumbled in trying to explain why they didn't protect her even though they were legally obligated to under the auspices of their own laws and were unable to find and bring to justice the people responsible for it. You know, Asim, this was a story that was risky for you to report as well. I'm curious how you rationalize that. I think um, I've never... I've never been super comfortable talking about individual risks as a reporter in large part because the people that we are covering and the stories that we are covering are so much more severe and it almost feels like me talking about whatever modest or minor risks I took is a, is a disrespect to the legacy of the things that I'm covering. Um, but, but yes, I mean, of course, there are things and there are times and moments where you're like, oh, wow, okay, I'm being followed or this doesn't feel very comfortable. I think there's a few things that I always keep in mind. And one is that I'm extraordinarily privileged. I'm an American citizen and an American passport is a big deal uh, in Mexico and even among sort of the world of organized crime. And number two, I work for the New York Times. And even at the time when I was on book leave, I was still a New York Times journalist and, you know, I've worked in Afghanistan, I've worked in Iraq and in other places where there's a different kind of violence um, and where going after a journalist is considered like a benefit for the organization and the group that I'm covering. But it's not really the case in Mexico. At the end of the day, drugs are a market and cartels are business operators. Hmm. And it is not good for business to kill an American citizen and even less good for business to kill a New York Times reporter. But I don't know that everybody at every level has that first in mind if they run across me working somewhere. But it is true. And I, and I guess when I say I enjoy an extraordinary amount of privilege, it's to say that, you know, when you're covering people who not only don't have that privilege, but are distinctly unprivileged, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't tend to dwell too much on the risks I'm taking beyond making sure I'm safe and thinking through the risks I'm taking. Well, yes, it is a market, as you say. And and of course, we know this. We've talked about this on this program. But I still think we can't say it enough that, that the demand for these drugs from the U.S. Um, has made the trade so incredibly lucrative. This has also contributed to the fighting to control more of the trade, the territorial issues and the incredible violence we see from that coming up. And, and I just want to know what you want Americans to understand about our relationship to all of this? Yeah, I mean, thank you for that question. I think what I wanted first and foremost was for people to read a story and be compelled by it, to understand and see it in human terms. I think so often the policy debate, which I think we have wrong, is, is up in the clouds talking about border walls and talking about migration and talking about Title 42 and all these other things. And I think narrative has the power to shake people from their complacency to shed the normalize the normalization of these of the discourse you know that that just feels so staid and pat and so easy to just flip the channel on i wanted people to feel screwed to it i wanted them to feel like they couldn't ignore it and that includes policymakers to really understand what the repercussions of what we do are like and how they feel for an individual family there's a device in journalism that I, i'm sure you're familiar with called the one 
where you take something that is widespread and common, but you find the one example that you feel most clearly defines it and allows a reader or a news consumer to really internalize it. And that's what this book was an effort to do, to find the one. And Miriam, in many respects, beyond just my journalistic endeavor, was the one. And it was something that I did to show American readers there were real lives that suffer on the other end of drug habits, on the other end of draconian drug policies, with this absolute, you know, it, and I'm not, I'm not making a case here to, you know, legalize drugs. I'm not making a case here to end the war on drugs. I am just showing people what these policies have wrought. And I want them to see that. I want policymakers to see that and be forced to confront it before they jump forward in whatever sorts of policy discussions they're going to have. This was a, this was a diagnosis in some ways. Yeah. Uh, well, you were talking about policy as being culpable in this, and you were describing earlier the policy that the Mexican government and even the U.S. entered into an agreement with in terms of helping them to try to sort of cut off the head of the cartels, right? But then it just in mm. ended up creating more violence, whether to try to fill that vacuum or the realization that this was a many-headed hydra. You know, earlier this month, Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to Mexico. I believe Mayorkas accompanied him as well. And this was in part to sort of potentially change or replace that initial initiative, the Merida initiative, right? And, and try to mm. focus it instead on... Um, on a security agreement that would that would try to address conditions in Mexico, like the economic conditions that that propel that propel unemployment or underemployment or propel people to go and work with cartels and so on. I'm wondering if you have been following that at all and what you think about this latest attempt, especially with the players, the Mexican government <laughs> and the U.S. government. Uh, you know whether you have faith in them. I think it's hard to have a policy for two decades and subtly flip the switch. First off, I would say like the conversations we often have around this are, are so predictable. Um, and I also think that one thing that no one says, because no one can really say it, at least in a position of authority in government is by every metric, the war on drugs has failed. If you want to look at the amount of drugs coming across the border, if you want to look at the number of lives lost, either in Mexico or other countries afflicted by this, or the United States vis-a-vis -vis overdoses, the amount of money being spent, the amount of healthcare concerns that emanate from this, everything is it's not just failed, it's gotten worse. And I think these measures, perhaps they're a, a start to a conversation about changing that. But the second politicians start talking about changing these, you know, a perfect example is, as Blinken and, and Mayorkas were talking about the Medida initiative, what were the Republican candidates for president doing? They were talking about waging war on the cartels. Now, I, I don't know if they missed the memo, but there has been a war waged on the cartels since 2006, almost a 20-year war. And it has done nothing to bring any metric of peace, either to Mexicans or to the Americans, the candidates claim that they're so eager to protect. So I just... Maybe I'm a bit skeptical. I think it's a hard thing to do. And I don't know that 
there is that desire because at the end of the day, there is a bit of a fire and brimstone approach to drugs. And it is baked into a kind of puritanical view on substance abuse in the United States, which ironically has done little to stop it, curtail it, or even, it, in fact, in some ways it's grown it. But I think the idea that they are going to rethink it, at least it's a start. I don't, I don't have any idea whether it's serious, whether it'll go anywhere. And I don't think if the Democrats do lose and the Republicans come in, there's a prayer that that's going to be upheld. I think, in fact, they might try and escalate this war using special forces, which is which is, I hope, just political saber-rattling. But who knows? You know, maybe, they, maybe they do try and, quote-unquote, wage war on the cartels, in which case, I don't know, I would urge them to look at the last 17 years of what the Mexican government has done at the behest, in many cases, of the United States for a roadmap to what it's going to look like. Let me remind listeners that you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener writes, the appetite for popular illegal drugs is the driver for drug crimes here and in Latin America. If these drugs were legal and regulated, the dangers of using them would still be here, but the crime connected to drug use, abuse, and addiction would plummet. Azam, what do you think in terms of what it will actually take to to make progress on this, reduce violence, you know, make inroads, make this these conditions less acute? I um I don't pretend to be an expert on the conditions of of reducing drug demand in the United States. But as someone who has been able to embed and cover this so closely, just I'm curious what insights you may have gotten. Whether you know it's your expertise. Of course, of course, of course. I mean, uh, I'll speak about it from the Mexican perspective first, which is what this is what I was trying to do with the book. Yeah, I think two things happened simultaneously. That Mexican people are paying for. One is this remarkable demand for drugs from the United States transformed Mexico into something like the DHL of illicit substances. It shares this enormous border with the United States. And inevitably, to smuggle those drugs through, you have a cast of entrepreneurial characters with funny names who shift this stuff and push it across the border. And they are always going to exist until or unless there is some sort of change in that policy, because it is lucrative and it's a going concern and it's a multi, multi, multi billion dollar business. Concurrent with that, you have a Mexican state that has not developed and sophisticated its rule of law. And so the way that is playing out is extraordinarily violent and extraordinarily chaotic. You have a rotating cast of characters for whom there's a single response both from the Mexican government and the U.S. side, and that is to kill them or take them out, which, as we've already discussed, kind of leaves a disarray that does nothing to curtail the violence or the drug trafficking. So I think you've got this dual component. One is the American demand, which is insatiable, and two is a Mexican state that essentially was created post-revolution to extract and prey on Mexicans in some ways, and their inability to tackle or the, the cartels or implement a functional rule of law that applies to the masses is a result of that. I think on the U.S. side, I don't know, I think about great changes that have happened in U.S. society sometimes, and there's a generational shift that occurs, or there's incredibly smart and sophisticated people that come up with strategies and means to change the discourse. Gay marriage, for instance, you know, that was something I can remember when I was much younger, it was verboten. Nobody talked about it. And then suddenly 
you know, it's, it's so common as to be unremarkable. And it's, mm. it's just considered a part of the human rights we share as Americans. I imagine there's going to have to be a change in the conversation about drug use, even drug sales within the context of the United States. Enough of a momentum shift and a body of people who realize this is folly, who realize what I'm, what I'm saying, what many people have said, which is, how can we continue with this? And I was talking to a colleague about this the other day. I was like, the drug war has started to feel to me like this, like the furniture that sits in your garage that's been there for so long, you don't even see it anymore. You meant huh. to throw it out. It no longer functions. But you suddenly in your brain have placed it there and mapped your routes in and out of the garage around it because it just, it's stuck. We know this doesn't work. We've seen it doesn't work and arguably has made things worse. And yet it doesn't change. And I think that is going to take a reset. And that reset is hard when politicians can still talk about sicking our U.S. special forces on Mexican cartels as a means to drum up votes and support. As if they missed the last 20 years of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and how failed those were. Um Somehow it still works. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. again, I, I would say I'm not an expert, but I think there has to be a mentality change or there has to be a strategic effort to, to make that shift. Well, if your goal was to help people, you know, be shaken awake a bit and, or also see this from a new vantage point, this is Eric Wright's superb guest. I'm learning a lot and getting great new perspectives. Azam, you're talking to us from Dubai. So <laughs> this means you are no longer reporting out of Mexico. We're coming up to the end of the hour, but just very curious what you're doing right now. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Um, so I, I left the bureau chief job in Mexico and took book leave. And then subsequent to that, I was named an international investigative correspondent. So I'm focused on, on global projects. And my first project, which I'm, I'm working on and hoping to wrap up, uh, is a project on Afghanistan. Huh. How, you know, I, I was a bureau chief in Afghanistan and hadn't been back in seven years. And once the Taliban took over, I just, I was compelled. I had this curi curious curiosity, like, you know, they were ciphers through the duration of that war. These individuals we never saw, never even heard from, and suddenly they're running the government. And in the history of war, it's not all that common to be able Ooh. to go back and speak to the insurgency <laughs> well, and ask them what happened. You know, there's this whole chapter of history that feels like it's been cleaved off of the history books. And well, come back, Azam, when that reporting that. is ready. We'd love to hear it. Azam Ahmed, the book is Fear is Just a Word, and this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.